We are going to finish uh, chapter 11 this morning. We left off uh, around uh, verse uh, 15 or 16. Um, And then just to kind of give you a roadmap for this morning, we are going to just give it kind of an introduction to chapter 12. 12 is one of those uh, just monumental chapters in the book of uh, Romans, and I just want to give you a taste of of what's going to come, because it's really a turning point chapter. It's what we call a, a hinge chapter, because... Paul is going to finish the, his letter to, to Romans um, with some application and exhortation, and again, we'll get, we'll get to that this morning. Is there anything, and maybe you guys relate to this a little bit, is there anything that you've gone most of your life believing only to find out later in life that it just wasn't true? Usually, usually it's something your mom and dad told you, and then you found out the hard way that it just wasn't, wasn't true. My mom used to tell us that the car wouldn't start unless everyone was buckled in. And I remember, I think it was one Sunday morning, ironically, on our way to church, that I had forgot to buckle in. I was in the back seat, and guess what? The car started, and we were backing out, and I'm like, wait, wait a second, and then I realized my mom had lied to me. <laughs> so things like that, and sometimes you, you don't find out until like you're an adult that this isn't true. One more, I know I'm painting <laughs> my mom in a fantastic light, but she's not here this morning, so, oh, wait. But I remember going to a, a potluck, and someone had bought what I thought were angeled eggs. And I said, who, who brought the angeled eggs? And they said, what, what's an angeled egg? Oh, those right there. Those are deviled eggs. So I went back to my mom, and she just didn't want to give the devil credit for her eggs. So she always called them angeled eggs. That's my life. That's my life. As Paul writes to the Jewish believers in Rome, he understands he's dealing with generations of incorrect understanding when it comes to who God is and how he makes a man righteous. Not because God has misled them, but because they have misunderstood the Lord. They they have misunderstood his word. There's a lot that they did not understand about who the Messiah was and what he was coming to do. They thought the Messiah was coming to overthrow the Roman government and install his kingdom through force and through a display of worldly power. They also believed that their righteousness came from a careful adherence to the Jewish law. But as Paul shares with them, no, righteousness is by what? Faith alone in Christ alone. And that's not anything new as he has taught throughout the book of Romans. That God didn't change his mind somewhere down the line and say, okay, no, instead of being righteous 
through careful obedience. Instead, now you're going to be righteous through my the sacrifice of my son, Jesus Christ. No, this has been the plan all along. He pointed back to Abraham. Abraham trusted God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So he is working with generations of wrong thinking about who the Messiah is and how an individual is made righteous. So that's what we've been looking at in Romans chapter 9 through 11, helping the Jewish Christians understand, because even though they're born again, even though they've given their life to Christ, even though they're a part of the church and under the new covenant, you guys know, especially if you've come from maybe different religions or maybe maybe you've come from a Catholic background, there are still things that are ingrained in you almost that you have a hard time reconciling with the truth of God's word, right? Some of you still feel very guilty, don't you, every day? That God is judging you. That God um, means to do you harm in some way because of your sin. And then you have to remind yourself, no, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, So Paul is not only reminding these Jewish believers of the truth of the gospel, he's also equipping them to take that message out to their brothers and their sisters because one of the main questions that a Jewish individual would be asking is has God cast away his people then? Because the majority are many of the Jewish um, national Jewish or ethnic Jews had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And if Jesus is the only way to the Father, then what does that mean for God's promises and his covenants with the Jewish people? And that's how Paul starts out chapter 11. It centers around this question, has God cast away his people, his people that he has made promises to and covenants with. He had promised to redeem them, to give them a glorious kingdom, to give them peace from all their enemies and the fullness of blessing, but they have continued to reject Jesus and seek after righteousness through their own works. So Paul asked the question, well, has God cast them away then? If the nation of Israel has rejected Jesus, has God, has God in turn rejected them? And what was the question underneath the question? Can God be trusted? Does, does God go back on his promises? And then how does Paul answer that question in verse 1? Certainly not. The resounding no, it's the strongest negative in the Greek language. Has God cast away his people? Certainly not. God is faithful and he always keeps his promises. So we learned in the first few verses of chapter 11 that Israel's rejection is only partial, right? There's always been a remnant of Jewish believers who were saved through their faith, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs of the Jewish faith who trusted in God's word and it was accounted to them as righteousness. And then Paul uses himself as an example. I've become born again. I've been saved. I've been transformed. And I am a Jew amongst Jews. I am part of that faithful remnant. So their rejection is only partial, 
We also learn that it's purposeful, that by the Jews rejecting Christ, the message of the gospel then went out to who? The Gentiles. And that was God's plan. And as the message went out to the Gentiles, there was mass, mass uh, Redemption, restoration amongst the Gentiles, these pagans that the Jews looked down on because they were not God's chosen people, they were getting saved. And the Jews had a very difficult time with that. But why did Paul, Paul says there's a reason for that, so that the Jews would be provoked to jealousy. See, it's one thing to say, hey, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all that you have and to love your neighbor as yourself. But when you start seeing pagans living it out, I mean, the early church, they were loving God more purely than any of the Pharisees ever did. They were loving one another more purely and more spiritually and more godly than the Pharisees ever did. So that kind of love that kind of affection, that kind of biblical living out that, that, uh, the, the great Shema is what it's called. Loving the Lord your God with all your soul, strength, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. When they saw it lived out through the early church, the purpose of it was to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy. That's true power. That's what's lacking in our life. And then, This morning, we'll see as we continue our study that Israel's rejection is is passing. It's only temporary. And you may disagree with this, and that's fine. We We can talk about it. But let's take a look at Romans chapter 11, verse 13. Paul now turns his attention to the Gentiles. He just got done explaining that the Gentiles coming to faith, the purpose was to provoke the Jews to jealousy. But then he turns to the Gentiles, and remember Paul's heart as he writes this letter. He wants to see unity in the body of Christ. He knows that Jew and Gentile relationship can be a source of division because of long-held, deep-seated prejudice. And his desire is to see them as one body and one mind with one mission. For I speak to you Gentiles, Paul says, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world... So Paul's saying if their rejection of the gospel means that the gospel went out to the rest of the world and the rest of the world was blessed because now they have an opportunity to become born again, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So if their rejection was a blessing to the world, he says, and he's talking about something in future tense now, right? What will their acceptance be? Doesn't it give you kind of a sense that he's talking about a future event? If we have been blessed so much by their rejection, how much more will we be blessed when there's an acceptance? Then he goes on. For if the first fruit is holy, 
the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. What does he mean by that? A lump. Some of you guys still make your own bread. And he says, if you pull a piece of that lump off and that piece is holy, then that lump must be holy, right? It's like eating a piece of cake. If you're sitting around, you you take a piece of cake, you take it to your seat and you're eating it, you don't wonder, hey, I wonder what the rest of that cake is like. This is really good. I wonder if the rest of the cake is this good. You may pretend to wonder that so you can have more of it, but the reality is you know because of that piece, that's a good cake. It's just a piece of the bigger picture. So he says, if that first fruit is holy, that first piece of the lump, and remember that first fruit was offered to God as an offering of gratitude. Then he goes on and makes another example. He says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. So what is this lump and this root? Now, in the context of this passage, we are talking about the blessings and promises and covenants of God to the Jewish people. And the first fruit would be Abraham believing God, taking him at his word, and it being accounted to him as righteousness. So if Abraham became holy through that covenant, through that promise, and he was blessed, then doesn't that mean the covenant is good? If the branches are alive and healthy, doesn't that mean the root is good and holy? Look at verse 17. And if some of the branches were broken off, who are the broken off branches? Unbelievers. Specifically in this context, Jewish individuals that rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They were cut off from the root, from the covenant, from the blessings that come through faith in in God and faith in Jesus Christ. They were broken off, and then he says to the Gentiles, but you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. What does the olive tree represent throughout Scripture? I heard a rumbling. I, don't, I couldn't make out any words. Israel. Israel. Represents Israel. And the Gentiles were called wild olive, or wild branches. And we've been taken and grafted in to the olive tree. One commentator points out that it's customary to reinvigorate an olive tree which is ceasing to bear fruit by grafting it with a shoot of wild olive so that the sap of the tree gives life to this wild shoot and the tree now again begins to bear fruit. So if you have an olive tree that's not bearing fruit, you can wake it up by grafting in the branch of a wild olive tree. Kind of interesting. And Paul makes reference to this. He says, Gentiles. And this is, this is why I have an issue with re- replacement theology. 
where the church now is completely replacing national Israel and all of God's promises and covenants. Because what Paul is talking about isn't an uprooting of one tree to replace with a new one. He's talking about the original root, the original lump, the original covenant and blessings, branches growing off of that, some branches being cut off, but new branches being grafted in. Does that make sense? And we are those new branches. And then what does he say? Verse 18. Do not boast. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Why would this be the warning? Because Paul knows the heart of man. The Jewish people looked down on the Gentiles because they were God's chosen people. Now the Gentiles are learning that they've been grafted in. They're a part of the family. And some, not all of Israel is Israel. Some are being cut off and there's a tendency to look down on someone to think that they are better than someone else. Especially, isn't that the natural response when someone has done you injustice for so many years and then you are in a position of power over them and you have an opportunity to return that same pain? And what does scripture say? Do not return evil for evil. And you can see how that might creep into the early church. How you treated us like we were nothing. That God had no desire to have anything to do with us and now we know we are his child and you're the one rejecting him there would be the source of pride that would sprout up and Paul says don't go down that road that's a dangerous road don't boast because it's not you it's the root it has nothing to do with who you are it's all about the root the promises of God that supports you You will say then, well, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off. And you stand by faith, do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Now again, Paul's not trying to stir up this constant, and and there's people who struggle with this. Man, I don't know if I'm saved today. I may have lost my salvation because I, oh, I drove in rush hour and I reacted or I reacted to my spouse or I don't even know if I'm born again. That's not what Paul's doing. He's saying respect the God who saved you while you were still sinners. Understand it's not about a work of the flesh. God saved you. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You are just as disobedient as the Israelites were and the Israelites are. Consider that the high price of your salvation God is a just God. He is merciful, but he's just. That's why he says in verse 22, consider the goodness and severity of God. And we get into an unhealthy understanding of who God is when we don't have both of these in clear view. 
The American church today is all about the goodness of God, but we miss the justice and the holiness of God, the severity of God, that standing before God without the covering of Jesus Christ is the most terrifying place to be because he is that good and he is that righteous. And we live in a world today that is uncomfortable. I don't want to believe in a God that would do that to somebody else. I don't want to believe in a God that would would send somebody to hell. But we would never look at a judge who sends someone to prison who has committed an atrocity and say, oh, I don't want to judge like that. I don't want a judge who actually pronounces condemnation on those who deserve it. We would never say that. But God is that good and he's that righteousness. Right, righteous. Consider the goodness and severity of God that there will be judgment for sin, but he has made a way through his son Jesus Christ that we might be right with him. And the wrath of God was poured out on his son so that it would not be poured out on us. Consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. And the, that word fell is transgressed. On those who transgressed, severity. But toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Again, that's not about maintaining salvation. This is the fruit of salvation. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Verse 23. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in Again, for if you were cut off, cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to your nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So you get just this taste of something to come. This natural, national Israel, ethnic Israel, someday being grafted in to the original tree and how well that will take because that is their natural tree. The wild olive branch is alive and able to produce fruit solely because it is grafted into a healthy tree. Now look at verse 25. And this is where there's a little bit of controversy, a little bit of differing in opinion, and I'll give you where I stand and some of the other um, uh, views on it. But verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, this mystery of, of the Jewish people rejecting Christ and Gentiles becoming saved, and then a future date, the national Israel becoming born again. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So again, a future event. That blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. That's what people get hung up on. 
We'll get into that in a second. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion. Who's our deliverer? Jesus. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. There's going to be this time, the fullness of the Gentiles, where all of the Gentiles who are going to become children of God have become children of God. And at that point, something's going to take place. The deliverer is going to come. And he's going to turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And that covenant that promise will be fulfilled. He says, I will take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, verse 28, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the, fa- of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have been disobedient through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. You see God's grand plan throughout human history. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. I know that's a lot to take in. But just let me, I really want to land on one place before we move into chapter 12. All Israel will be saved. What does that mean? Some would say that means every Jew who has ever lived will live eternally with God and stand right before him because of his covenant promise. I don't think Paul has taught that through the book of Romans. We know that Verse 5, 1 of Romans, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. There is one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. So to believe that a Jew who has rejected Jesus Christ will be saved because of God's covenant promise, I don't think the Bible teaches that. So I would take issue with that. Some believe that all of Israel means the church. It means spiritual Israel will be saved. And you understand where that's coming from. There's one olive tree, and we're all being grafted into that olive tree. So that means all of spiritual Israel will be saved. And they would point to, they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But again, I don't think that that's the context of what we're looking at here. Now, is there a spiritual Israel? Absolutely. Paul has said not everyone who is circumcised is circumcised of heart. Even the uncircumcised are circumcised of heart. So there is a spiritual Israel that we as Gentiles have been grafted into. But I don't think that's the point Paul is making here when he says all of Israel will be saved. Now, some would also point out that this might be just the chosen remnant that Paul was talking about at the beginning of the chapter that all Jewish believers will be saved. All of the Jews who have put their faith in Christ will be saved. But again, I don't think that's the context of this passage. I believe that Paul is referring to ethnic Israel, national Israel, at a specific point of time in human history. 
a time that we are all looking forward to at the end of days. Once the fullness of the Gentiles has taken place, once that last Gentile gives his life to Christ, there will be a great national revival amongst the Jewish people. And in that day, we will see God graft many from the nation of Israel back into that olive tree. It will be a national revival. Now, you may disagree, and that's, that's completely fine, but let's at least agree on one thing. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. And this is where Paul kind of closes it. He says, God has shown mercy to us all. That's the point. God has shown us all mercy. Whether we're a Jew or a Gentile, God has shown us mercy. We were disobedient, but while we were yet sinners, Christ has died for us, right? And let's all agree that it is only by faith alone that we are saved. It's only by faith in Christ alone that we're saved. In Galatians 3.26, Paul says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise that ultimately we are one body in Christ. So we're almost done with chapter 11, so hang with me. So with all of that in mind, as Paul, and a picture of this, Paul is writing this letter, and he's just overflowing with gratitude about what God is doing uh, and hungering to see his people become born again. But as he's reflecting on this, look at what he writes in verse 33. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He gets into a place of worship. He just begins to praise God. Oh, the depths of the riches of his wisdom, of his knowledge. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and shall be repaid to him. What can we offer the Lord, Paul says? God, what, what am I doing here? What, why, why are you even using me? Who can be your counselor? How can anyone repay you? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Can God be trusted? Absolutely. God keeps his promises. And as Paul thinks about all that God's done throughout human history to draw people unto himself, to use an entire national group to testify that he is the one true God and work in them and through them to carry out the message of the gospel to an unbelieving world and then use the transformation that's taking place in the church to provoke that chosen people to gel. I mean, Paul's like, man, your ways are so much higher than ours. And it's there. It's in that moment, it's in that spirit of worship and reverence that Paul, now remember chapter 12, we put the chapters there. 
So blow that out of the water for a second because Paul is in a state of worship and adoration and in awe. Who are you? There's no one like you. What do we have to offer you? Nobody can repay you. And it's in that spirit that he says this. I beseech you. I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So it's in that place of worship when he wonders, what, what, what can we give to you? That he says, oh, I know. All of, all of me. By the mercies of God, I belong to you. I mean, there's that word. <laughs> Again, you've heard this a thousand times. Therefore, therefore, brothers. That's a big therefore. Sometimes when we see the word therefore in scripture, it's referring to the previous verses or the previous chapter. But here, Paul is saying, based on everything that I have written to you, the irrefutable case that I have made for God's mercy towards sinners, everything that God has done to make us right with him, in light of all of that, this is your reasonable response. Has every, anyone ever asked you to do something that was so unreasonable that it was almost disrespectful? Think about that for a second. Have your in-laws, did your in-laws ask to go on your honeymoon with you? That would be unreasonable, right? Or having a friend ask you to help them move into their third-story apartment, but they wouldn't be there because they have Cardinals tickets, so if you could just take care of that, would you, would you do that for them? I remember my uncle, somehow he had... Uh, come into possession of a dingo, a wild Australian dog. And he asked my parents to take care of it with three little kids. They said yes, but yeah, he was a good dog. He was a wild dog, but he was a good dog. Have you ever been asked to do something unreasonable? Guys, this would be unreasonable if it wasn't for chapters 1 through 11. This kind of request wouldn't make any sense if it wasn't for chapters 1 through 11. But in light of all that God has done, Paul says this is reasonable. In some of your uh, translations, it says this is your spiritual act of worship because service and worship are really one in the same. It's here in chapter 12, and hopefully I just want to set the stage for our study next week, but chapter 12, Paul is now turning his attention to Christian duty, what it means to live out the Christian faith. And you've heard me say this before, but mother is the, uh, mother, but repetition is the mother of learning, right? So let me say it again. And this is what I love about Paul's writings, not just in Romans. He always focuses on who God is and what he's done before he ever gets into what we should do. And that's where we get it 
wrong sometimes. He says, I beg you, by the mercies of God, which he just got done talking about, because of the mercies of God and in light of everything that he's done, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Because Paul understands that right actions born out of right motivations, anything less is empty religion. And trying to do without understanding who we are, that's just religion. It's the theological principle of indicatives and imperatives. Let me give you some examples in scriptures. This is just how Paul writes. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. What's the indicative? It is freedom for that Christ has set us free. And then he says the imperative, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This is who God is. This is what he's done. This is Jesus setting you free because he has set you free. Now stand firm in that freedom and don't let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery, going back to a a works-based righteousness. In Galatians 5.25, since we live by the Spirit, the Spirit indwells in us, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So first, the indicative, this is what God has done, the truth and the reality of what he's accomplished, and then what we do in response to it. Let me give you just a couple more. Colossians 3.1, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And the most well-known one probably, we love God, why? Because he first loved us. And it's not just in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Exodus 20, verses two and three, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. I have proven myself. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of slavery. I delivered you. So I am right in asking that there are no other gods before me. So don't worship anything made by human hands because there is no other God. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So why, did, why does Paul spend so much time on doctrine? Why do we just look at 11 chapters of doctrine, right thinking about who God is? Because if we are motivated by fear, if our obedience is about selfish gain, if it's about external pressures, if it's about what mom and dad think, if it's about what others think about us, if we're only being obedient to God's word because we're motivated by anything but gratitude, we're gonna be left discouraged. That's a depressing cycle that I think we've all been in at times with highs and lows and that's not what Paul is calling us to. He is saying in light of what God has done, this is reasonable. So think about the ask here. What's Paul asking of us? Again, what, what can we possibly give God? What do we give God? Can we give God any knowledge that he doesn't already have? 
Is God ever like, hey, Dan, what do you think about this? I'm trying to figure out kind of how to handle this situation. Where would you go with this? God, only you know. Only you know. What, what do we have to offer God? Anything we own? Does he want our money? What do you give a God that has everything? And Paul says, present yourselves. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's all of Christian responsibility summed up in one verse. A lot of people ask, what does God want for me? What's God's will for my life? What, what am I supposed to be doing? This is it. This is how we live out the greatest commandment. This is how we live out. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, the first and great commandment. And then we'll learn how we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is practical instruction from Paul. This is our reasonable response to all that God has done. This is our spiritual act of worship. It's surrender. God, I am yours. You bought me. You paid a high price for me. You showed me mercy. My future was destruction, and you changed the course of my life, and you replaced beauty. You gave me beauty for ashes. You gave me a future hope. And if I can give you this small thing, then I do it willfully. God, I'm yours. And Paul uses terminology that you'd see in Old Testament temple worship. He's talking about giving ourselves over as a sacrifice. Now that's strange. He doesn't simply say, hey, present yourselves to God and just ask him what he wants you to do. He says, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. What a weird phrase that is. A sacrifice is a, usually an animal that has been killed. So he says, present yourself as a, a living sacrifice sacrifice. That's an odd way to describe this. So what does he mean by a living sacrifice? Well, can I have you turn to Luke chapter 9 verse 18? One thing we know it's not is a sin sacrifice. We know that Jesus is that final sacrifice for sin. And that's not what Paul is referring to. There was another kind of an offering that was referred to as a burnt offering or a whole burnt offering. And in that case, you would take the animal from your flock, and not just any animal, right? An animal that was unblemished, without defect, kind of the choice animal from your flock. And you would present it on the the altar, and that animal would be completely burnt, leaving nothing behind, signifying everything that you had was ultimately the Lord's, and God doesn't get any of your leftovers. God gets your best. And if you recall, one of God's main accusations against the people of Israel as they slipped away from him was, you're giving me your leftovers, You're giving me your blemished animals. Do you despise my name? That's what he said in Malachi chapter one. You bring polluted food upon the altar. Have I polluted you, he asks? You offer me blind animals and sacrifice. Isn't that evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, isn't that evil? You're going through the motions, 
but your heart's far from me. And that's the kind of living sacrifice that Paul is talking about here. In Luke 9, verse 18, Jesus was walking and he was alone and praying. And his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowd say that I am? And so they answered and said, Some say you're John the Baptist, but some say you're Elijah, and others say that you're one of the old prophets that has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, You're the Christ of God. You're the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And Jesus strictly warned them and commanded them not to tell anyone of this. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Okay, that would be hard to hear in and of itself. You're the Messiah, I am the Messiah, but I'm going to be killed. I'm gonna be executed. But then, we don't always know the context of this verse, but look at verse 23. Then he said to them, if you want to come along for the ride, if you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If you want to come after me, you must take up your cross, when? Daily. Present your life as a living sacrifice. Guys, this is, a, this is not about justification. Justification didn't cost us anything. It cost Christ everything. But our sanctification, that's what costs us everything. As we walk with him, and we say no to our flesh and yes to him as we present ourselves as men and women consecrated to the work of God. One commentator writes, to be a living sacrifice is to be fully at God's disposal. It means actively being willing to obey God in everything he says in any area of our lives and passively to be willing to trust God and thank God for anything he sends in any area of our lives. It's presenting our bodies, our efforts, our thoughts, everything that we are becomes his. Do we do that perfectly? No, but we are being transformed day by day into his image as we learn to give up more and more of ourselves. That's the process of sanctification. Paul's already touched on this in Romans 6.13. Do not present your members or your body as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Make yourself available to him. That's what Paul's teaching. We've already presented our bodies as slaves to sin and we knew we know where that's led us we know the destruction that that's called cause but now paul says present yourselves as slaves to righteousness all right guys let me give you one more verse how do we do that 
Let's get pra- that, that sounds really spiritual. It sounds awesome. It sounds like something that we all want to do, but then we get home and we're like, how do we do it? How do we live it out? How do we make this practical? Paul tells us, don't be conformed to the world. We, got, we know how to conform, right? We are creatures of conformity. You put us in a setting with people and you let us just stay there long enough, we're going to start taking on the traits of that group. We are creatures of conformity. And then you have multi-billion dollar corporations that benefit from our conformity. They try to shape the way we think and shape the way we purchase and shape the way that we act towards one another. And they make billions off of controlling our behaviors. You ever been scrolling through your phone and you're just like, why am I doing this? But you don't stop. (laughs) Those apps are designed to keep your eyes on them. And they're designed by people that are far smarter than us. And we scroll and we scroll and we scroll and it's not doing anything for us. But we're just mesmerized by it. That's conformity. We're being conformed to the world. So he starts by saying, don't do this, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So Paul knows it's not easy to give yourselves over to God and let him have everything. But he says, here's the path. And you can't do this at the, you can't conform to the world and be transformed at the same time. You have to either be conformed or be transformed. It's one or the other. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And that word transformed, it's the same word that we read when we see Jesus transformed on the mount. The transfiguration. When he begins to take on his glorified body and he stands with Elijah and Moses and Peter having nothing to say, said, hey, maybe we should build some tents for you guys because he didn't know what to say. This is the kind of change that Paul is talking about. The word is where we get our word metamorphosis. It's not just changing our minds. It's becoming more like Christ. Learning to love the things that God loves in the way that he loves them. Guys, this is, this is we talk a lot about not being so inwardly focused that we don't see what's going on around us. But here, Paul is saying, no, it's okay to focus inwardly for the glory of God and the sake of others. Take into account where your thoughts live. Don't allow yourself to align with the thinking and the opinions and the desires and the impulses of this age, but instead, Allow your mind to be transformed. And in 2 Corinthians 3.17, Paul writes, the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there's liberty, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. 
So what, it, what, what does that mean? How, how can I transform my mind? Well, we look in the mirror. How does that make any sense? What do you see when you look in the mirror? It's not a trick question. What do you see when you look in the mirror? You see yourself. But look at what Paul says. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. So as we look in the mirror, as we're presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, as we're just surrendering and submitting to God, and we look in the mirror and we see God working in us and through us, and we see the glory of the Lord, and we're like, God can change me? And it creates this confidence and this trust and this gratitude because we see the glory of the Lord in us. Some of you can't accept that. That's hard for you to hear. When you say, when you look in the mirror, you just see a sinner, then I would encourage you, present your lives as a living sacrifice. Go to God like Samuel went to God and say, I'm here, Lord, what do you want? See, that takes us full circle. We fix our our minds on God and what he has done And the more we see his character and we understand what he has done, the more we're motivated to surrender our lives to him. And as we surrender our lives to him, we change, we become transformed, and we see that change, and it encourages us to set our minds more on the things of God and not the things of this earth. And as we do that, it proves what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That means to test out to try out and to approve and to demonstrate. So that's what we're getting into as we finish off the book of Romans, this place where we are being sanctified and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And during that change, the world is watching and we are proving to this world who God is and what he is doing as he transforms us. I know a a lot, I'm throwing a lot at you but hopefully we're just setting the stage for what's to come in chapter 12 because now it's time to get up. A lot of times we are simply coming in on a Sunday morning and we're learning about who God is and what he has done, but we are missing that connection with then going out and saying, God, live it out. Live out your will in my life.